Morning. Good to see you. Want to welcome you here as well. It's exciting to be here. You know, uh, I appreciated all of Tom's announcement, that announcement about that uh, really trendy Noblet and Hardy. You know, y'all are cutting edge. Twelve things a disciple needs to know. I thought, man, that's a cool title. So I'm going to change the title of mine. All right. Sixty-six books everyone should read. Okay. <laughs> And uh, we're going to do them one at a time. You give me the thumbs down. Man, that's a cool title. All right. Uh, but I hope you do. Uh, just if you've got a watch, look at it right now and ask yourself, what am I going to be doing at 1110 this morning to 12 o'clock? What are you going to be doing? And most of you say, uh, just kind of sitting around waiting for lunch. Right? A disciple is a learner. You could be sitting around in a discipleship class and learning. And follower of Christ, we would love to have you in one of those classes um, because that's who we are. That's what we do. We teach here. We teach everything whatsoever God has commanded us. Uh, there are lots of commands that God's given us. We're looking at the Ten Commandments in this series. And as we come now to the Sixth Commandment, let's just do a quick summary review. If you've been memorizing the summary we put together and put on a refrigerator magnet here, I got it right here. There's still some, I think, on the table out there if you didn't get one or if you're here for the first time. Let's see if we can go through the Ten Commandments as a church. Number one, have no other gods before me. Two, make no idols. Three, keep... Good. Four, keep the Sabbath day. I always say, is it Sabbath day or Sunday? How did we summarize it? Keep Sabbath day special. Okay, good. Five, Honor father and mother. Six, murder. Seven, commit no adultery. Eight, commit no stealing. Nine, good. And ten, do not covet. This morning we're looking at commandment number six, do not murder. And I was thinking even as we were singing that long last song, it's God's breath in my lungs, therefore I... I breathe, therefore I praise, therefore I live. It's God's breath. We don't have the right to snuff it out. Thou shalt not murder. Don't take away that breath that God has placed within us. This commandment is just like the other five we've looked at. We're going to see the others as well. You come to it and some of you say, check, got that one. Never have I murdered. And we see when you start looking at the way God defines murder, you say, oh no, I've committed that one too. I've disrespected the breath in my lungs. I've not given God the praise for life. I've not maintained life. Obviously, if, if the command is don't destroy the life God's created, the other side of it is then I must be preserving the life God has given me. And so if you're not on this side, you're on that side, both as commandment breakers. I know the more I dwell on this commandment, the more I see that, uh, man, I've, I've fallen short in, in, in not even giving dignity at times to the life God has created, which would come under this. If you watch anything on television, anything on the internet, anything in the news, you are seeing murderers 
every single day of your life. That's what they report on. That's the stories they tell. And we're not just talking about crimes where people are murdering people in a violent way, but we're talking about other ways that murder is happening, the assassination of character, the destruction of dignity. Uh, we're talking about, yes, abortion. We're talking about suicide. We're talking about assisted suicide. This command is far-reaching. Anything that is involving the destruction of life or the not preserving of the life God has given and granted by His design. He says, this matters to me. Don't destroy it. Preserve it. That's what this command is about. And it's not an easy one to interpret because the same God who gave us this command is also the command, the God that we know kills and destroys every day. There's destruction because of judgment. He's a just God. And there's times where God is the author of war and it's a just war and millions are being destroyed. So the same God who at times kills life tells us that's not our prerogative. And we shouldn't be involved. So it gets difficult when we start looking at just wars and non-just wars and just how to apply all of this. I can't get into all of that this morning. Uh, but that to be said, there's a lot here for us. A lot to learn, a lot to think about. Um, we have no right to tear down the life God's built up. So what do we do to preserve? Let's look at the why or why we should do it and then the ways we can do it. Why should we preserve life? Um, its essence is it's something God's created. We tend to think about it as our, our bodies. But I want us to think when we're thinking about life this morning, bodies and soul, look at Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10, verse 28. Matthew 10, 28 says, Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. There are people here, all of us in this room, we can destroy a body. God said, don't fear them. That's nothing compared to what happens after these bodies are done on earth. In other words, the destruction of bodies on earth, that doesn't finish things. It's not over at that point. He says, if you want to understand and be sober-minded about life and death. Don't fear those who just destroy body. Fear him who has the authority over body and soul. See, that's not our prerogative. We don't have that authority over body and soul. And there's times people do things to us and say, it's bad, it's bad, I'm just tired of it, I'm tired of it. And we murder. And we can murder them through physical action. And God says, that's nothing. Because that person and you both have to meet your maker. And when you meet your maker, then 
you will either be put into eternal heaven and glory, or you'll be put in a place, body and soul, in hell for eternal torment. You think what's going on now is bad. You haven't seen bad. You haven't seen agony. You haven't seen pain. And this commandment leads people there quickly. And God says, I don't want you to try to preempt people's time on earth and send them to their grave because beyond the grave, there's meeting with their just God. And there's a place called heaven and a place called hell and they're real. And we need to be sober-minded about all of that. Why preserve life? It's a big deal. To treat respectfully the life God has given us. Uh, destroying life disrespects it. Uh, look at Genesis 9, verse 6. It was mentioned earlier. Just the fact that we were made in God's image. After the flood, God starts giving some laws and rules to Noah. And this is one of them. Genesis 9, verse 6 says, Whoever sheds the blood of man, so if you commit murder in the sense that you kill somebody's body, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. Here's the foundation for capital punishment. If you commit murder, you should be killed. And then he gives the rationale. And the reason is because what you have done is destroyed the image of God. Man was created in the image of God. And it's offensive to God to take that image out. Uh, if you've had a kid bring to you a picture that they've, they've drawn. And I'm talking about a little toddler uh, two, three, four years old. You know, they can't even write yet. They're... They're scribbling their name on it the best they can. They're drawing some little picture. And they've worked hard on it. It's beautiful in their eyes. And they've signed it and they present it to you. And you take it and say, eh, okay. You toss it in the trash. And then they see it in the trash. Where are you now? You're in the trash, right? You've messed up. When they bring you that picture, they don't expect it to go in the trash. They expect it to be on your refrigerator. They expect you to go to a frame shop and frame it somewhere and put it in your house forever. It's offensive to them if you have taken their creation and just trust it. And so, you know, as parents, we can only have so many of these, so we wait till they go to bed, you know, we do something with them. God has taken our bodies. I mean, it just blows my mind that He created heaven and earth in six days and rested. But for you and me, He begins with a seed planted in a womb and intricately weaves a person through a nine-month process gives birth to life and says and I don't want you to mess with that and for us to think that doesn't matter we're just crazy he has already taken 
such care. It says, I put my image. That's my creation. I signed it. My picture. Do not murder. Don't destroy this life that I have created. Treat it with the utmost of respect. Doesn't matter whether they're Christian or non-Christian. They are created in the image of God. God says, you take a life, your life should be taken. That's how serious it is. Get serious about obedience here. Second, destroying life makes a noise in heaven. I think you're already kind of seeing that. God's already hinted at that. Look at Genesis 4, verse 10. The story of when Cain murders Abel. And God makes this statement. Genesis 4, verse 10. The Lord said, Whatever you have done, no, excuse me, what have you done? He's speaking to Cain. You've killed Abel. What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. I don't know where God is at this point. We assume he's in heaven. He's in his God place, maybe above the heavens. But the picture we get here is that blood makes noise. Blood screams prayers. And God hears them. You think nobody, nobody heard, nobody saw Cain looking around. Nobody knows what I just did. I just murdered Abel. And God says, let's clear this up. You think nobody saw, nobody did anything. Blood talks. And Abel's blood is talking to me. Blood makes noise. Death makes noise in heaven. When we murder someone, we destroy someone, it's making noise. Uh, and it drowns out other cries. Obviously, it's heard. Look at Psalm 91, excuse me, 9, verse 12. Psalm 9, verse 12. For he who avenges blood is mindful of them, and he does not forget the cry of the afflicted. Again, God says, you're tr just trying to avenge things. I get that. He says, but I don't quit listening to the people you killed, to the afflicted. Destroying, cutting the throat, cutting off the head, destroying the body does not destroy the soul. It still cries out. It still makes noise in heaven. God says, I still hear their cries. You haven't done away. Why should we preserve life? We're just destroying souls. We should see that in God's image and respect it. Number three, uh, destroying life is devilish. It's devilish. It, as I was thinking about it, it reminds me of what God did, no, excuse me, what Satan did in the presence of Adam and Eve and in God's presence. Jesus makes this statement about him. It's a simple statement. John, uh, I believe it's 6, verse 44. Let's see if I can get there. 
It's close. I hadn't got there yet. John, it's 844. All right. John 844 says, You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. And here's a phrase I, had, I hadn't seen before this week. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character. He's a liar, the father of lies. Now, Satan is a murderer, it says, from the beginning. And in the context, talks about his lie. What, what did, what are the, what's the first thing we know about Satan? Satan comes to Adam and Eve, and he lies. He says, if you eat of this fruit, you shall not die. That's a lie, right? Uh, no, actually, it would be the truth. If you ate of that fruit, you would die. He says, no, you won't die. Well, that's a lie. He was a liar. He was the father of lies. He was also a murderer from the beginning. Satan literally murdered Adam and Eve by tempting them to eat a fruit that would kill them. The destruction of their lives was his plan, was his activity. He says he's a murderer. He's been murdering from day one. Sometimes we don't see, yeah, that's in God's definition of murder. Working for the destruction of another's life. Adam, uh, Satan was doing that. So when, when we do the same, we're in that camp. We're devilish. We're doing what Satan himself has done, is doing. And then D, destroying life invokes God's curse. Revelation chapter 21, verse 8. We know God cursed Cain. It extends way beyond him. Revelation 21, verse 8. As for the cowardly and the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, that's the one we're looking at this morning, the sexual, immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. First death being the destruction of the body, second death being... A destruction that lasts in this eternal fire, in this hell forever. Why should we not murder? It invokes God's curse. This second death, it invokes a hatred from God towards those that are in this camp forever. Um, I've been hinting at this before I go on. Let me just talk about the kind of spiritual... Uh, soulful nature of murder as well. Look at Acts chapter 5. Excuse me, not Acts, Matthew. Matthew chapter 5. Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And, and you know this, uh, in a number of um, Jesus' statement in this sermon, that he took the Ten Commandments. He took about four of them, and he just says, You've heard it said, you shall not murder. You've heard it said, you shall not lie. And he, he expands them to involve so much more than just a basic 
understanding of the command. He does that here for murder. Matthew 5, beginning at verse 21. He says, You've heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother, and I see he's comparing our anger towards someone to murder. You thought murder was the only thing off the table. I wanted you to know that anger, hatred towards your brother, is like murder. Who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults, so the insult or the cursing, his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, you will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there at the altar, go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. God says, don't bring me your worship and think like nothing matters. And you spent the morning being angry and saying bad words, evil words, insulting words, cursing words, foolish words. You are defacing the image of God. You're taking the one that represents me on this planet and you're, you're hating them and you're angry at them and you're lashing out at them. It says, that's murderous is what it is. And we need to be careful with how we act and how we respond. Very simply, look at 1 John 3, 15. It says it as simple as you can get right here. 1 John 3 Verse 15 says, Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Man, that's a scary statement. If you don't know Christ. How many in this room have never hated somebody? I mean, it's, it's hard to find. I don't know anybody when I start investigating You've never hated anyone for anything? Well, most of us say, well, yeah, I have. It says here, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. It's easy to see. You just don't check the sixth commandment off and say, never done that one. Because of God's definition of murder. It involves so much more than we often uh, consider um, it's anger, it's hatred, it's improper speech towards others. Quick illustration I, th- I thought was, this shows us how far we've gone. Um, anybody happen to know famous country singer, I mean, know of her, Lynn Anderson? Do I have any? Yeah, a few of you. Okay, y'all are smart. Okay, she, some of you will remember uh, some of her songs uh, she was the one that says, I never promised you a rose garden. You remember that, right? She was the one that uh, wrote Top of the World. I'm on the top of the world, looking down on creation. Yeah, like, okay, I know who she is now. She's, she's very famous in writing songs we all know. Little trivia. What you don't know, she spent two days in jail for cursing her husband. And she did it in front of the kids, so the kids were witnesses. 
And the judge sent her to jail for two days for saying curse words about her husband in front of her kids. 1992, the same year she wrote Top of the World. So, that's crazy. That wouldn't happen today. Well, it's on the books. It could. But we think we've come so far and that we have this freedom of speech. We can say anything we want about anybody and nobody should lock us up for it. And God says, no, murder is in that category too. And being locked up in jail for a couple of days is nothing compared to being locked in hell for an eternity. So it's a very serious command that God brings to us. And we should preserve life through our words, our speech, our heart, our attitude, our thoughts, our disposition, as well as uh, violent actions. Um, how can we do that? I'll give you two ways that we can preserve uh, life. We preserve life, first of all, by defending it. Let me give you a couple of uh, classic passages often used um, uh, in pro-life rallies, but I think somewhat inappropriately used. Look at Psalm 82, the first four verses. Psalm 82. God has taken His place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, He holds judgment. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. Uh, Simple passage of God saying, I look from heaven, I see what's going on. And I see a land of people that take advantage of the weak and the poor and the afflicted. And if they're poor and afflicted, you sometimes don't even mind if they die. And you just let it happen. And you forget, I'm watching what's happening and I'm a just God and I don't want injustice. I don't want someone being led away to the slaughter, being locked up, being destroyed just because they're weak, just because they're needy, just because they're poor. Other things should be happening. He says, where is the one who's going to defend and protect and stand up for? And it's a, what I meant earlier by saying sometimes it's inappropriately used this is a passage given to God's people, to the covenant community. And he's saying, these are covenant commands. He says, I want you as my chosen people to protect one another, to take care of one another. And if there's somebody among you who's weak and needy or poor, you take care of them. He's not asking us to take care of the whole world. He's asking us to take care of his flock, his people. Sometimes we fail to make that distinction, but he's saying, this matters to me. So if, if you have a mother in your church who's got a crisis pregnancy, we understand those kind of things happen. How can you help that mother instead of shun that mother? How can you provide? How can you protect that child that needs to be born? 
So it's, it's a right passage for the understanding of God's heart. But it's God's heart for his people. And he says, if my people would do these things, the world would say, wow, how they love one another. Wow, how they take care of one another. Those Christians. They lay down their life for the weak and the needy and the poor and the afflicted that are in their group. What do I have to do to get in that group? You have to trust Christ as your Lord and Savior. He has to be your head. See, those kind of distinctions should be made, sometimes are neglected just through bad interpretation. One, one other passage like that, Proverbs 24, verse 11. Proverbs 24, verse 11. says, rescue those who are being taken away to death. Hold back those who are stumbling to the slaughter. Um, very similar to what I've already said. You just see the need to preserve life. No murder means you defend life. You preserve life. You don't stand by passively when the intruder comes into your home Seeking to destroy life. No, you stand up. You preserve. You protect the lives that God has put under your care. Second way that we can preserve life. We preserve it by not neglecting to maintain it. I won't take a lot of time here. Because we could get into a big area. Um, in Leviticus 13, 14. talks about those who have leprosy. It says if you have leprosy. And leprosy in that day was a very contagious disease. It says, show yourself to the priest, you're contagious. And if you've got it, you need to, you need to be you know, quarantined somewhere. And we'll, we'll check back to see if you're still contagious. It was easy, should have been easy for us with COVID and so many things. You have a contagious disease. God says, the way to preserve life, you quarantine the, the contagion. Um, such a way that they don't spread the disease. Uh, there are other times where um, people in the Bible said, take a, and I don't know if some of you old timers can help me with this, but there used to be some sort of concoction you make out of figs that would make boils and um, sore spots go down, and you would take a, this concoction of figs and you'd put it under the leg or under the boil, and the legs, the swelling would go down. God, God commands that in the Scriptures. So God wants us to use medicines that are available. God wants us to stop the spread of diseases by if you got fever, stay home. Don't spread it. That's preserving life. Ordinary things we should do. This goes also into proper exercise. Preserve your life. It goes into proper eating, proper diet. Preserving our life. The sixth commandment deals with all of that. Ways we preserve life. We have to think, this is the body God has given me. I must be a good steward of it. I need to think through what I eat. I need to think through how I move. I need to think through um, proper medicine. I need to think through uh, if I've got an infection, if I will spread it. All of that comes into play under the sixth commandment. And those are ways we preserve life, um, keeping ourselves out of danger and keeping others out of danger. Has anybody not yet broken the commandment? Are, are we getting there? 
Has anybody not done the right exercise or eaten the right thing? Or, you know, at some point we're all saying, okay, I'm guilty. I didn't keep the sixth commandment today. There's things I've done that didn't preserve the life God gave or I infected or harmed and hurt others who have been given life. So if we haven't preserved life, what must we do? Now here's, here's the bottom line, really. I want you to know, this, this, the breaking of the sixth commandment is so widespread. And, and I don't think anybody here is not guilty of breaking the sixth commandment. I want you to know clearly, the sin of murder is not unpardonable. It's not the unpardonable sin. There's hope for sinners. There's mercy for sinners. Christ died for murderers. Christ died for thieves. Christ died for the addicted to all the things that destroy life. And we need to see, though God is the one who gave the command, He also gives a solution. And that solution is seeking His mercy. His grace, His pardon that comes to us through Christ. What can we do? Let me give you two things, uh, or three or four, who knows. Galatians 5, 19 through 23. Galatians 5. I want you to see the contrast between the believer and the unbeliever. Galatians 5, verse 19 says, Now the works of the flesh, and that's the description of the unbeliever, the person, because he's going to tell us about the Holy Spirit coming into our lives. So the person who doesn't have the Spirit of God is described here as a person of the flesh. He's absent of the Spirit. The works of the flesh are evident. You see, non-Christians do this all the time. It says It's just evidence, obvious, nobody has to tell you. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity. Here's where murder gets in. <clears throat> Enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger. Jesus says that's murder. Rivalries, dissension, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. Verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. See, that's where the preserving of life comes in. I just want you to see the contrast. And the reason I want you to see the contrast is to realize whoever you are here this morning or those listening, that if you have not received a new birth, if you have not been born again by the Holy Spirit, if the Spirit of Christ has not come into your life, your natural inclination, the way you were born, is to have anger, fits of anger. To get fed up and want to kill somebody. That's your natural inclination. That's what you're going to do. That's the fruit of your existence. Life as a sinner. The only way you can have the fruit of the Spirit is to have the Spirit. And without the Spirit, you can't preserve life. As God wants it preserved. You can't hold back 
that fit of anger. You can't hold back that hatred. You need restraints. And the restraints God has given us are the restraints of a spirit dwelling within us. Which is what I mean. Realize your need for the work of the Holy Spirit. Wake up every morning and say, God, I need you in my life to live through me or I'll kill somebody with my words, my thoughts, my actions. I'm a mean person without control. Where does that self-control come from? From the Spirit. Plead with God. God, fill me up. Fill me, Jesus, with your Spirit or I die. And I take others with me. And I don't want that. I don't want to be a murderer. I don't want bringing, to be bringing people down. I want to be giving life and spreading the life that's ours in Christ. Maybe you haven't heard it said quite that way, but you need, we need the Spirit of God uh, to take away all desire, all thoughts, all activities that come from the heart that would be murderous to others. Second, acknowledge um, our disobedience fully. Acknowledge it. Uh, hopefully you know by now, maybe you don't. Look at 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. Gives us what we should do. Verse, 1 John 1, verse 9 says... If we confess, the word confess, just stop right there, means to agree with God. That's what I mean by acknowledge. If we agree with God, we've sinned. If we confess our sins, if you agree with God, God, I saw the command, you shall not murder. I want to stop today and agree with you, I've done that. As it's been explained through the scriptures, I'm a murderer. Confess. If we confess, acknowledge to God our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Have you done that? Have you gone to God in prayer and said, God, I'm a murderer? I had an opportunity today to defend and preserve life. I didn't take it. I had the opportunity to, to take care of the body you gave me. I didn't do it. I voted for the destruction of babies in the womb. I stand guilty of murder. Have we gone before God and Acknowledged our sins. God's not playing with them. We shouldn't think they are trivial and don't matter that it's just a list of commands doesn't apply to me that much today. No, they're still here. And we still need to deal with our sins. God says, you do that. You will find me faithful. I won't cast it off. I won't say it doesn't matter. And you'll find me just. 
I am faithful and I'm just. I, what I'll do is I'll take your sin that you committed and I'll give it to Jesus. And his work on the cross, his perfect obedience, his sacrifice will be your sacrifice. He'll pay your penalty. And I'll forgive you and let you go free as one who is no longer held guilty and accountable for that sin. That's the glorious news of Christ that he wants. We don't clean ourselves up. God doesn't say, come to me when you get it straight, when you get clean. God says, come to me while you're messy, while you are still dead in your sins. Acknowledge those sins. Let me take those sins and apply them to Christ. And then I'm going to take Christ's righteousness and I'm going to apply it to you. What a wonderful exchange that is. So let us rejoice that murderers can go free. It's not an unpardonable sin. We can be freed from our murderous ways. And then we can demonstrate, see, a lifestyle change. Show it. Demonstrate it. It's our responsibility now. If we have the Spirit living in us, that we must produce the fruit of the Spirit. Live like it. Show it to your husband. Show it to your wife. Show it to your kids. You're not angry like you once were. You're not bursting out at them anymore. You're trusting in the control of the Spirit. And they begin to see that you value them differently. You're preserving life instead of seeking to destroy them with your words and thoughts and actions. Demonstrate the life change um, that we're forgiven and we've been changed from hatred. And it happens by nurturing and nourishing others. That's the life change. We're in a community that's sweet. Where we've got people here that every week you're, you're, you're loving on other people and hugging people and kissing people and taking care of people, and providing people, nursing people, feeding people, clothing people. That's a lifestyle change that you see in the body of Christ. If you're not there, that's where you need to be. That's, that's your direction. That's what God wants to see as fruit from your life. And then D, claim God's complete cleansing and forgiveness. If God's given it to you, trust it, claim it. Let me share with you Psalm 51 real quick. The confession of David after he had murdered Uriah. Psalm 51. So good example for us murderers to look at a murderer's confession and see what claiming God's complete cleansing and forgiveness really looks like. Psalm 51, verse 2, David says, Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. That's the way to pray. God, I don't want to just get a little better. I, I, I want to be completely washed and clean. I don't want to hold on to a little bit of anger and hatred because, you know, God, I really don't like that person. God says, no, let's clean it all out. Let's start living like Christ. Look at verse 7. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. What a picture. Says, you know, the picture is that you've got mud, muck on you. Wash that so thoroughly off that it looks like white, fresh-driven snow. It's just 
There's no spots. It's, it's just all pure and clean. Verse 10, created me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. He needed that spiritual life and control. Verse 11 uh, it keeps going, you know, cast me not from your presence and take not the Holy Spirit. He's not saying he lost his salvation, but he had clearly quenched the spirit, grieved the spirit with his murderous actions. He says, I want to be renewed. I want to be so thoroughly cleansed that the spirit is flowing through me freely. It's not like he's cast aside, but he's working in me, verse 12, to restore the joy of my salvation. I want to be happy again. And I'm happiest when God is most satisfied with my life. He said, restore that to me. Where I can look to heaven and see the smile of God upon me. Well, David's a good place to kind of pause. David was a murderer. King David wrote most of the Psalms. I mean, you know how godly he was. And yet he was also, just like you and me, a murderer. He's not the only one. Moses, great leader, people of God out of Egypt, leading God's flock, a national church of six million plus. Murderer. Murdered a man, looks around, you know, sees a man, kills him, buries him in the sand. And that's not all he did. David's a murderer. The Apostle Paul, get into the New Testament, most of the New Testament, written by his hand. Murderer. Just proof that you can be a murderer and end up pretty good. All three of those men also had a time where they acknowledged their sin. They sought God's cleansing. And they began to be filled with God's Spirit. And their lifestyle changed. And I want you to know that for you and for me. I don't preach or teach hardly anymore where I'm not in a room where somebody's had an abortion. And you struggle. And, and you know it's not just you. I'm not just talking about the woman. You might have had a dad. The husband of the child. That encouraged you to destroy that child. You might have parents, grandparents, uncles, aunts, friends, neighbors, doctors. Lots of people are involved in that. But you feel it. So wherever you are on that spectrum of being a part of that murder, the millions and millions of children have been murdered in our land, not only through our votes, but through our direct encouragement. And we're guilty. And we need to feel that guilt and see that guilt. But we're not alone in that. It spreads through everyone in the room. That we're all guilty. Like Moses. Like David. Like Paul. And so I want us to have a time to confess and to pray. And acknowledge right here. We need to keep this command. We need to keep it by being serious about sin. And then in your homes, I mean, over and over I hear of anger and hatred and 
she can't be a Christian. Did you hear the way she speaks? Or he can't be a Christian. He's always cursing, insulting, destroying the life of our home. I want us to have the time to say, that's murder. That's wrong. And we need to be cleansed and done so that we begin to not only live a life of joy, but preserve that life for our own homes and for our church. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you this morning. And we're murderers. We don't have a standing. In your courtroom, we should have already been thrown out. We don't have merits of our own to to wash away our sins. We've taken the image of God that you so preciously took time to create. And we've brought it down and we've destroyed it and thrown it into the trash. Father, have mercy. Forgive murderers. Forgive sinners like us. We're so thankful there are people before us that give us hope that they have been washed, they've been cleansed, and they stand with you in heaven. Lord, we want to be alongside them. So we ask that you would forgive us of all our sins of all our murderous thoughts and words and ways. And that you would not only cleanse us in this room, but our family, our friends, our church. And may it spread to our land as we vote in a few days that we as a people see that righteousness exalts a nation. So we must be righteous. Draw us back, Lord, to the need for Christ and His righteousness. And may it be demonstrated through our lives. Father, for those in this room that have been murderous from day one, they've never experienced the power of a transformed life, the Holy Spirit coming into them. May they be born again even now as they pray. Lord, have mercy. Cleanse them from their sin. And let them walk out of here today new by receiving Christ as their Lord and Savior. We beg of you, Lord, change us. We ask all these things, Lord, in the mighty and powerful and cleansing name of Jesus. Amen.